I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Surprise. Oh, wait. That was your line. Surprise me now. It's high noon for Thursday, October 21st, 2021. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator or join the discussion thread at t.me slash I'm reasonable. You can also find me on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. Also, if you happen to listen to the podcast on the Apple Podcasts app and you have not done so before, please take 45 seconds, go over, leave the podcast a five star rating and drop a little review right there. It will make me feel oh so appreciated. Today is the 274th day of Barack Obama's third term as served by the half-dead, demented, degenerate, ventriloquist dummy, fake proxy president Joe Biden, who was overwhelmingly compromised by the Chinese Communist Party, the patriarch of one of the most corrupt families in American history, and the father of one of the most despicable sons to ever walk the earth. That's Hunter Biden. So congratulations, commies. You voted to save democracy And now that you saved it, you can use it to make other people do exactly what you want. That's the whole point of having a democracy. You get a majority either by people actually agreeing or simply by stealing an election and then publicizing that most people really do agree. And then you take that majority and you punish Everyone that disagrees until your majority becomes real through their submission. What a masterful plan. And the best part of the plan, of course, is that once you have collected enough power, you can actually use the levers of your very democratic system to make sure that no one ever opposes you. And then you just get more and more power which makes it clear that you're a bigger and bigger majority. Which means you can do even more to make people do exactly what you want them to do. What a fantastic system our democracy is. Except if you happen to be one of the people who's in the actual majority, you know, the one that didn't put the Democrat Communist Party in power, and now you're being told what to do by a bunch of idiots who stole power, our democracy isn't quite what it's cracked up to be. And if you have realized that, well, maybe it's time you start representing yourself as part of the majority that is in fact in opposition to the false and illegitimate majority represented by our democracy. So you just got to stand up and speak truth and you got to migrate back to America. And once you leave all those 
stupid and evil communist ideas behind and understand that they don't actually represent a majority of people. There is no majority of people who wants the life promised by the communist regime and that there never will be a majority who wants that. Unless, of course, you actually depopulate the planet until all that's left is a bunch of rock dumb communists all patting themselves on the back. Hey, it's only us now, guys. (laughs) Now everything's perfect. The utopia has begun, y'all. Now it's only those of us who agree. Man, Trevor's got to take that hat off, huh, guys? Hey, can we all agree that Trevor has to take that hat off? Hey, Trevor, take that hat off. Oh, you don't want to take it off? Well, how about we kill you? (laughs) Just like utopia, you know? That's utopia. And hey, Kami, if you're like, I don't really want to go down that road any longer. Come on back to America. All you got to do is migrate back. We'll receive you with open arms. We'll be very happy that you decided to join with us in the progress of this American project of liberty and self-governance. That's it. Just come on back. And with that, I would love to extend a warm Thursday, high noon welcome to all the redeemable communists out there. Hello, commies. It's so great to see you here on the right side of history. You know how it's the right side of history? You know how you can know? You know how you can be very firm in your belief that you're on the right side of history? Because now you're not on the side that is trying to force parents to inject their children with an experimental gene therapy. It's so easy. It's so clear. It's so black and white at this point. You don't even have to wonder whether or not you're on the right side of history. You just have the simple thought like, oh, yeah, did they test that? No, they didn't really test it. So they're going to try to force you to inject that into your kid. Oh, yeah, that's bad. See that? Simple. So simple. It's not complicated at all. It's just never good to force parents to inject their children with an experimental gene therapy to protect them even though it doesn't protect them, against a disease that can't kill them. Couldn't be any easier. Now, CNN is not a big fan of trying to think about whether or not you're on the right side of history. CNN is just worried about the future of our democracy. And there is just a 10-bell headline on CNN today by that deranged communist Stephen Collinson. Bannon case and stalled voting rights bill show how GOP has given up on democracy. You got that? They can't pass a voting rights bill that is going to allow for the federal government takeover of elections, which is antithetical to the Constitution and to the purpose of making sure states can run their own elections. If we don't pass that bill that is not supported by the people of the country, then that is anti-democratic. Imagine what kind of child brain you have to be to think that the only way to support democracy is to do things that will make sure people's votes never count again. George Washington's nightmare is coming true. 
Two disparate events this week, Steve Bannon's willingness to risk criminal contempt of Congress to protect a twice impeached former president and the GOP's latest move in the Senate blocking efforts to guarantee the rights of all citizens to vote are validating the first president's fear that American democracy would founder on the rocks of partisan extremism. Okay, well, that is quite a beginning. Steve Bannon is willing to risk criminal contempt of Congress. Okay, even if your framing, Kami, is true, that's not a threat to democracy. That would be a threat to Steve Bannon. He might be putting his freedom on the line. It's not a threat to democracy. They just don't want to do what you want them to do. And the whole twice impeached former president thing, that's not going to be a framing that works for a whole lot longer. That is just a bunch of straight up commie bullshit. And as for an effort to block citizens right to vote, that is not what this is about at all. This Voting Rights Act is coming from a party that is right now engaged in efforts in Illinois and New York, at least, to allow people who are not citizens to participate in elections. And no, it's not all elections, but people who are here illegally do not have the right to vote. Their opinion about how American life should operate is not relevant, not because they're not worthy as people, but because they're not citizens. That's how it works. I don't get to walk down the street into my neighbor's house and be like, hey, you know, you guys are going to have to switch to Verizon. (laughs) I don't get to vote in what they spend their money on. And I also don't get to go down and steal their mail-in ballots and vote for them. Who am I? Some Democrat activist? That's the only people who are allowed to do that. Everybody knows that. While the American people are weary of the endless partisan fights bequeathed by Donald Trump's presidency, they are caught in a seminal moment that will decide how America is governed now and for generations to come. Oh, the stakes are so high. The Bannon and voting rights cases, which are on a fast boil, underscore how the threat to the U.S. checks and balances system, epitomized by Trump's election lies and defiance of accountability, is getting worse with every month. And these are not just isolated challenges to the role of Congress and the integrity of the electoral system, but part of a broad and coordinated set of actions that reveal how one of America's great parties, the GOP, is putting the Amassing of power and the need to protect and impress a leader with autocratic ambitions above the basic democratic fundamentals. This is exactly what Washington warned against in his 1796 farewell address and threatens to cause the, quote, ruins of public liberty and, quote, in the political system that he so feared. Again, it is amazing that these communists so clearly see what they themselves are doing and then recast it as if it's the other side doing it. Joe Biden is illegitimately pretending to be president right now. That is a man, a leader, not that Joe Biden has ever been a leader. 
but a leader with autocratic ambitions. Literally a description of the man currently pretending to be president. He has no mandate to be in office. He has no legitimacy in office because he did not win an election. And he is remorselessly operating in an anti-constitutional way. Every single day that goes by is another day filled with rampant constitutional disgraces done intentionally because the Constitution is looked at by the Democrat Communist Party as a hindrance. Republican lawmakers are expected to vote in large numbers on Thursday against a full house effort to hold Bannon, Trump's former political guru, in criminal contempt for ignoring the House Select Committee probing the January 6th mob attack on the U.S. Capitol, their very place of work. Their numbers will not be enough in the Democratic-led chamber to prevent the referral being sent to the Justice Department. But the vote will again expose a party in thrall to an ex-president who disrupted a peaceful transition of power. Well, let's forget about how ridiculous his framing is. And remember where we started. This writer, this communist, Stephen Collinson, is framing the situation as a threat to democracy because the other side votes for their interests, which are not aligned with the Democrat Communist Party. Voting against the Democrat Communist Party is a threat to democracy in this framing. This is explicit. That is what he's saying. Bannon has made a dubious claim that his conversations with Trump around January 6th are protected by law, even though he was not a serving official at the time. He is openly acting on the ex-president's instructions as Trump claims all his contacts in office are covered by executive privilege. The select committee, however, wants to know what Bannon said to Trump before, during, and during the Capitol insurrection. It also suspects he is a key organizer of protests that turned into a mob attack on Congress after he predicted on his podcast the day before that all hell is going to break loose. Steve Bannon on the war room says all hell is going to break loose all the time. Today, this morning, the podcast of War Room passed 100 million downloads. That is so many, particularly since most of them are within the last year. 100 million downloads in a year. I am not anywhere close to that. The power and reach of the war room is unbelievable. And as Bannon often mentions, the podcast is like the fifth or sixth way that people actually take in the war room. Millions and millions of people watch it live. In terms of live views, they probably passed 100 million like in January or something. Maybe even before. I wouldn't be surprised if they got 100 million live views a week. I mean, they do three shows a day. 5 million live viewers per hour, per show, 15 million a day, totally possible. Don't know if it's true, but I know that a lot of people pay a lot of attention to the war room and that infuriates these people. In fact, let me break from this CNN article and point you to Friar Cuck, Jamie Raskin, because Friar Cuck is always one of the dumbest, most dishonest people in American public life, maybe ever. But this is astounding, even for him. 
catch the signal, not the noise. Okay. Eddie, you started off by saying that uh, we're more concerned, I think, about Steve Bannon's podcast than we are about the truth of January 6th. I didn't know Steve Bannon had a podcast. Uh, apparently, it was, it, well, did you listen to the statements of the? I didn't know that that's where they were drawn from. He referenced them in his opening. Well, I knew that Steve Bannon was repeatedly saying on January fifth that all hell is going to break loose tomorrow. We are closing in on the target. He was saying it's unlike anything that you're going to expect, and so on. It's very similar uh, to other political rhetoric. Okay, the, the, fair, fair enough. Fair enough. But here's the point. Let's just speak for real, if we could, Mr. Gates. Only way I do it. You've been on. You've been on Steve Bannon's podcast three different times. I think um, way did, more than three. Uh, okay, at least three times that I could find just by Googling it here. So the only person mentioning Steve Bannon's podcast is you. No, that's not true. The chairman actually mentioned it in his opening. Okay, that, then then I missed it. He was mentioning statements. He wasn't advertising the, the podcast or his slogan. Jamie Raskin just said, hey, let's, let's speak for real. Like, let's be uh, very authentic and honest right now. And then he says... He's found three appearances by Matt Gates on Steve Bannon's podcast, the very podcast that not 30 seconds earlier, he said he was thoroughly unaware of. He did not know that Steve Bannon had a podcast. 30 seconds later, he has already researched poorly because he was wrong. How many times Matt Gates was on the war room and Matt Gates has been on the war room many, many times. That is just an example of what these people actually think they can get away with. They think everyone else is stupid. How stupid would you have to be to not see that Jamie Raskin is lying? Their hope is that no one ever watches these hearings. They just want to supply some clips that they can tweet out or that Rachel Maddow and Chris Hayes can put on television so that they up their profile looking like they've slammed Jim Jordan or Matt Gates. That's all this is. And this was so obvious at the uh, second fake impeachment, which I covered at length back in February, especially Friar Cuck's role. But that's just blatant dishonesty. But I digress. Back to communist Stephen Collinson for CNN. It should be no surprise that Bannon is at the center of an attempt to disrupt and clog Washington's mechanisms for accountability. For most political figures, a contempt citation might stain a career. But in the case of this flame-throwing disruptor, it may be seen as the culmination of it. Well, it's amazing that these people are trying to make this into some world-changing event. An illegitimate committee is involved with an illegitimate investigation and sending out illegitimate subpoenas. Now they are trying to create a big show out of this so that they can use illegitimate power in the Department of Justice to go out and pursue criminal charges against Steve Bannon because they want Steve Bannon arrested and they want him locked up so that he cannot continue doing the war room every day. Because the war room is destroying their entire movement. They are literally trying to censor, disrupt, and silence the free speech of an American citizen because the person has too many other American citizens listening to him. They want to stop it because his free speech 
endangers their narrative. It doesn't endanger them as people. It endangers their ability to wield their illegitimate power. And so they are using the Department of Justice. They are trying to bring criminal charges. They want to imprison Steve Bannon to prevent him from speaking. And let me just tangent again, because this censorship thing is just so pernicious, especially once it reaches this point, because there's another aspect to censorship that we probably don't spend enough time on. Censorship actually deprives us of making correct, important moral calculations because it defiles our sense of reality. We cannot properly exercise moral judgment when we are prevented intentionally from getting information that's critical to the judgment. For instance, let's recall that Gallup survey from like six months ago that was investigating people's beliefs and misinformed beliefs about coronavirus. One of the things it showed was that a ridiculous proportion of Democrats, I think it was like something like 40% of Democrats believed that people who were infected with COVID went to the hospital like 50% of the time. And the truth is that it's between one and 5% of the time. The real truth is that it's about 1% of the time. So they were off 50x. And then something like another 30% of Democrats thought it was between 20 and 50%. So 70% of Democrats thought it was 20% or higher. The number of people who were infected with COVID who were then hospitalized. 20% or higher. Just looking at the world, just being present in the world would tell you that that is not anywhere close to true. In fact, it's absolutely ridiculous. It is beyond ridiculous. One out of every five people who gets COVID ends up in the hospital. One out of every two people who gets COVID ends up in the hospital. This is actually something they think. And when you are off by that amount about the most important decisive factors of an issue, you end up doing things like voting for a man who was mentored by a Klansman while thinking you're solving racism. That's the sort of terrible moral decision-making that can be expected from people who don't know anything. Now, it is very, very dumb to have a belief so obviously dumb, okay? But I am not saying that all those people are just condemned to a life of stupidity, though many are. It should not be hard for them to change their mind when they are shown new information or they are encouraged to think about the content of their actual belief. Like if you were to ask most of those people, wait a second. So you really believe that one out of every two people who gets infected with COVID ends up in the hospital? You think it's that dangerous? And then they might be like, oh, well, yeah, okay. Well, maybe it's not that many. Maybe it's like one in five. And you'd be like, really? One in five? And then they might draw it back and they'd think it was one in 10. 
And eventually they would just be like, well, yeah, I don't really know, but really it's only, it's not that dangerous. It's only like one in 50 people, one in a hundred people. You tell them that you show them the statistics and then they might actually say, okay, yeah, I got it. That makes sense. Wow. COVID really isn't as dangerous as I thought. I am giving them the benefit of the doubt that some of them will be smart enough to understand that. But how are you supposed to make decisions about things like masks and vaccine mandates and vaccine mandates for children when you don't know anything? The reason that they don't know anything, the reason they're so confused about those simple decisive factors involved with coronavirus policy is because of censorship. You might think, yes, it's also because they are just naturally uncurious people who are happy to repeat the slogans of their party. And that is absolutely true. But without the censorship, they would be exposed to the counterpoints. And once they see those counterpoints, once they understand that people who do have the credentials to speak on these issues will say the exact opposite of what they believe, they are more likely to change their minds. The censorship is what allows them to stay uninformed. And they end up with the illusion of moral thinking. That's where the self-righteousness comes from. They actually think that they are right about the determinative factors involved in decisions like this, but they're not because of the censorship. And so they end up making terrible moral calculations that actually do the opposite of what they think they're trying to accomplish. Their decisions have protected no one. And yes, ignorance and lack of curiosity work together to create that problem. But censorship is what makes a solution absolutely impossible. Let's return to the communist at CNN. The former Wall Street investment banker was quick to see Trump as the epitome of his own populist nationalist ideology and worked as a White House official in the early months of his administration. The ex-president's inept governance only furthered Ben's ambition for the deconstruction of the administrative state as it handicapped the regulatory regime he believes liberals use to wield power. But most of all, Bannon likes to watch the elite Washington system metaphorically blow up. So by refusing a subpoena and challenging the authority of Congress itself, he is being true to his long-term political goals. Nine months after he was pardoned by Trump in the final hours of his presidency after fraud charges. The House's criminal referral of Bannon, if it passes as expected, represents one of the last chances for Congress to guard its constitutional oversight powers in relation to Trump's attempts to tear down the guardrails protecting U.S. democracy. If the GOP wins the House in midterm elections next year, it is expected to close the probe. That's because the probe is illegitimate. After the chamber votes, it will ultimately be up to Attorney General Merrick Garland to decide whether to open a criminal case against Bannon. The Justice Department chief will face tough questioning from Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee on the case on Thursday. His position became more delicate last week after President Joe Biden said people like Bannon who defy subpoenas should face the consequences, although the department quickly insisted that such decisions would be taken independently and not subject to politics. The House vote on Bannon 
will come a day after Senate Republicans use the filibuster, a device not mentioned in the Constitution, to prevent passage of a bill that makes it easier for all Americans to vote and harder to steal elections. The bill would have ruled out many of the restrictions on voting put in place by Republican-run states on the basis of Trump's election lies. It also expands mail-in voting and would make Election Day a public holiday, so as many people as possible could make it to polling places. Okay, I'm going to let the rest of this nonsense article go. This is ridiculous. All right. It is obviously ridiculous. This is how desperate these people are. They are pretending that their Voting Rights Act somehow makes it harder to steal elections. And the means by which they accomplish that is by making it so that elections can be conducted entirely by mail with no need for proof of identity, no need for proof of citizenship. Doesn't matter if you're a person or not. If there is a vote on a piece of paper somewhere, you could find it in a gutter. You could print it in the days following an election loss and still have it counted. So it turns into an election win like they have done. Anything that looks like a vote now must be a legal vote. That's what they're trying to do. And they think somehow that Americans will believe that makes it harder to steal elections. That's madness. Now, speaking of stealing elections, the cyber ninjas have responded to Maricopa County's response to the Arizona audit because a response was necessary. Maricopa County misrepresented so many aspects of the audit and so many of the aspects of what the audit found that Cyber Ninjas was forced to respond. Maricopa County continues to purposely mislead Arizonans and the American public about the nature of audit findings and the impact they had on the 2020 general election. Their response renames and redefines audit findings, so the claim can be made that the findings are false, includes logical-sounding arguments that simply don't add up, and is completely devoid of any supporting evidence. The following response to their review continues to refute their baseless claims with evidence and citations. And I'm going to read Liz Harrington's summary of this. She did a long tweet thread about that. But I just want to go through some of these sections here in this report. I have posted this in the info stream today, t.me slash I'm your moderator. You can find the PDF. You are able to search within these channels for people who don't know this. You can search for it. By simply typing in Cyber Ninja's audit. It's posted today, this afternoon. So here are some of the issues addressed. Here are some of the uh, segment headings. Uh, Voted using prior address. Mail-in ballots voted from prior address. More early ballots returned by voters than received. Voters that potentially voted in multiple counties. Official results do not match who voted. More duplicate ballots than original. EMS database and logs purged, files deleted. False county claim the Senate needed to subpoena backups or archives. False county claim standard archival steps were taken on February 2nd. That's when they deleted files right before they were supposed to hand them over. False county claim the the county ran two forensic audits by certified companies. Misleading county claim the county ran a hand count. Corrupt and missing ballot images, subpoenaed equipment not provided, internet connections and cybersecurity practices, 
And that segment is an absolute mess. Software and patch management, credential management, log management, failure to properly retain log data, intentional execution of scripts to deliberately ensure that log entries were not retained. And the tenor of this back and forth is really interesting, you know, because they put out a report initially. Doug Logan was threatened when they were intending to put out the draft report that said specifically in big, bold type that the election should not have been certified. That draft report was legitimate. Doug Logan confirmed that on a podcast with Joe Altman, but that wasn't the version that went out. The version that went out still showed rampant corruption and criminality and a lot of unanswered questions, but it also said the claim that the media ran with that upon recounting the ballots, it showed roughly the same result. And Biden even came out a little bit ahead after recounting the ballots and assuming that they were all legal. But the truth is, and what the audit found is that they are not all legal and that the election was not conducted legally. So let's turn to Liz Harrington and her Twitter thread. Maricopa's claim about voters who moved is extremely misleading, provides no documentation for the 12,772, more than the margin, who moved outside of the county. Illegal votes. No answer for how many of the 15,035 legally changed their address. Cyber Ninjas corrects the record on the false claim that the 23,000 mail-ins from people who no longer live at that address were all college students and snowbirds. Taking into account military personnel, this would only reduce the 23,344 to an even 22,000, twice the margin. There were more early ballots returned by voters than received, and Maricopa County's answer doesn't make sense. And she quotes the report here. The numbers simply do not support the county's claim curing of ballots would result in a second scanning of the envelope. This is a soundbite, not an explanation. She goes on. Official results did not match who voted. Maricopa County literally spun this as official results don't include all voters. On what planet is that acceptable? She goes on. Maricopa County claimed this was due to missing protected voters. The fact the county couldn't reply with a precise number of protected voters who voted in the election that matches the outline discrepancy shows their response is not accurate. More duplicate ballots than original. Once again, Maricopa County's explanation is extremely misleading and does not respond to any of the specific details. Maricopa County deleted and purged its election management system data in defiance of a subpoena. What was done for the November 2020 general election does not match any past elections found on the EMS server. Maricopa County admitted they moved the data after the subpoena to hide it from auditors. Their explanation, it was for storage space, is ridiculous, since over two terabytes of free storage on the device counters any arguments it had to be done for space. And she inserts video from the congressional hearing a couple weeks ago when the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors and Ken Bennett were testifying before Congress. Is it standard practice to delete files off a server after an election, Mr. Bennett? I hope not. Um, so, Mr. Gates, would you agree with that? 
Uh, I would say that it is appropriate to maintain files, and that's exactly what we did. We deleted the, the deleted files that have been discussed. They were archived. So you, you, so you admit that you guys did delete, Maricopa County did delete files off the server after the election? That, that, were, that are archived. Yeah, and so when you released um, uh, these, these uh, servers and these, this information to the auditors to begin with, they didn't have access to those archived files at first. Is that fair to say? They did not subpoena those. That's correct. <laughs> okay, so, so you didn't feel obligated to turn that over then to, to them? We, we responded to the subpoena. Okay. Mr. Bennett, your response to that? I find it, frankly, laughable to suggest that a county, in response to a subpoena, could say we will delete files from the hard drives and materials that we give to the auditors because we have those files archived on data that we did not give to the auditors when the subpoena said turn over all the records related to the election. So that's pretty clear cut. They were meant to hand over all the data. They're also meant to preserve that data as evidence for instances like this when they are subpoenaed to hand over that data. But instead of doing that, they archived the data so that they could comply with one half of that, which is the preservation of the data. But then they did not give that data to the auditors. They're trying to have it both ways. They deleted it, but they shouldn't be in trouble for deleting it because they also archived it. And the advantage for them, of course, is that the auditors don't get to see it. And that's not suspicious at all. Liz Harrington goes on. Maricopa County purged the data on February 1st, 2021, the day before the audit began. Contrary to their claim, it obviously is not routine for every election since, quote, data is still present for other past elections, end quote, on the server. The county did not conduct two prior audits. The only thing these companies could do was run test cases against the election equipment to see if it behaved properly. No results were audited by either of these two companies. And, of course, the report has much more extensive information on that and all the evidence to support the claims of Cyber Ninjas. And so, as I was saying, the report came out. The report wasn't as strong as it could have been and should have been. And the county took this extra step of responding and trying to refute the claims in the report that they didn't like, even though they publicly supported what they claimed was the overall finding of the audit. They actually chose to have it both ways when both ways were terrible for them. On one hand, they gave the audit credit for choosing the right winner, as they claimed, in the election. They said Joe Biden actually won by a little more. So I guess the audit worked. And then they tried to say that all the other stuff that the audit claimed was actually false, even though they knew it was true. Of course, they know this stuff is true. They tried to give the best argument on why it wasn't. And this simple act of responding by the cyber ninjas has destroyed any other chance that Maricopa County has of discrediting the audit. 
Now let's change subjects without a segue and look at just one more way that the illegitimate and fake majority is able to exercise power at will. This is from uh, Technofog today. John Durham gears up against the Alpha Bank conspiracy. A new filing in the Michael Sussman case has revealed the depth of special counsel John Durham's investigation. It doesn't look good for former DNC lawyer and former uh, Perkins Coie partner Sussman or for the group that pushed the Alpha Bank Trump hoax. Special counsel Durham has filed an opposition to Michael Sussman's motion for a bill of particulars. To summarize, Durham argues that 27 page speaking indictment against Sussman more than adequately informs him of the charges he is facing. What's really notable about the motion is that Durham discloses the volumes of evidence to be produced to Sussman and the number of entities and people Durham has subpoenaed. According to this latest filing, Special Counsel Durham has produced more than 6,000 documents, comprising approximately 81,000 pages to Sussman. This includes documents received in response to grand jury subpoenas issued to 15 separate individuals, entities, and organizations, including, among others, political organizations, a university, university researchers, an investigative firm, and numerous companies. And he excerpts the portion of Durham's filing where that quote came from. Let's decipher that last sentence. Who has received a subpoena from Durham? Political organizations likely refers to the DNC and the Hillary Clinton campaign, Hillary for America, the university, Georgia Tech, university researchers, the team involved in the Alpha Bank Trump hoax, an investigative firm equals Fusion GPS, numerous companies equals the companies involved with Rodney Jaffe, named Tech Executive One in the Sussman indictment. As we previously observed, Durham was already in possession of one email records from Jaffe, the research group and Sussman Perkins Coie two Perkins Coie billing records, three Perkins Coie records relating to calls and meetings regarding Alpha Bank Four grand jury testimony. And that's just on the Alpha Bank issue. Durham apparently remains focused on the broader FISA issues as well as other matters. The filing also notes that Durham is working expeditiously to declassify large volumes of materials to provide to the defense. But there's still more. Durham states after the production of these records, quote, the government expects to produce additional materials in subsequent productions, which will include additional interview memoranda, emails and other records, end quote. More than 30 declassified reports of interviews conducted in the course of this aspect of the special counsel's investigation, including interviews of the FBI general counsel and the FBI assistant director referenced above emails and other documents shown to witnesses during the above referenced interviews. Investigators notes taken during the above referenced interviews, transcripts of grand jury testimony for multiple witnesses, the majority of the FBI's electronic case file pertaining to its investigation of Russian Bank One allegations with relatively minor redactions to protect especially sensitive classified information, which may be the subject of a motion pursuant to the Classified Information Procedures Act and emails, memoranda, reports and other records obtained from Agency Two, including write ups of the defendant's February 9th, 2016 meeting with Agency Two personnel and his prior meeting with a former Agency Two employee. And after the production of those records, there is more. Durham states the government expects to produce additional materials in subsequent productions, which will include additional interview memoranda, emails, and other records. Why this matters.
We anticipate that Durham is gearing up to charge the group that created and pushed the Trump Alpha Bank hoax. This is based on the volume of information Durham possesses on this issue, which reflects substantial expenditures of time and energy and resources to put all this together. In other words, you don't call the grand jury on this issue and pursue this matter this far if the Alpha Bank researchers acted properly. But if we are correct that Alpha Bank researchers acted improperly, if the Trump Alpha Bank data was manipulated, exactly how did they do it? An Ankara report from 2020 has thoughts on what went down. CTAPT's detailed review of the DNS records demonstrates that the configuration of send-in servers may have enabled a threat actor to send spoofed emails or inauthentic DNS queries that could have generated DNS requests to Trump organization-affiliated domains from Alpha Bank and Spectrum Health IP addresses. And this is what has been suspected of actually happening. They intentionally tried to generate communications between the two entities to make it look like those communications were something nefarious and something intentional by both of those entities. Additionally, CTAPT's research did not find evidence of open source reporting from the information security community, either before or after this allegation arose, that would suggest DNS lookup activity as described by the anonymous researchers offers a means for covert or secret communications. The updated passive DNS analysis, coupled with the timing of the underlying allegations, suggests that Alpha Bank servers may have been unwitting sources of the DNS requests at the direction of some entity to create a connection between Alpha Bank and the Trump organization. If true, this may constitute a violation of one or more U.S. federal criminal laws. This theory of manipulating data is consistent with the communications revealed in the Sussman indictment, where a member of the Alpha Bank research team explained that it would be possible to, quote, fill out a sales form on two websites, faking the other company's email address in each form and thereby cause them to appear to communicate with each other in DNS. It also puts into context the August 22nd, 2016 observation from researcher one. How do we plan to defend against the criticism that this is not spoof traffic we are observing? There is no answer to that. Again, intentional. If this is the case, then Sussman faces more serious legal consequences than a simple false statement charge. He didn't just take their information to the FBI and later to the CIA. Instead, it was Sussman who spent long hours drafting the white paper that summarized and explained the purported Trump Alpha Bank links. This white paper was produced to FBI General Counsel Baker on September 19th, 2016, and it was Sussman who provided the new details concerning the Alpha Bank allegations to the CIA in February 2017, details that ultimately proved false. This leads to the potential for obstruction or conspiracy charges. As we have stated, for some of this group, Jaffe and some of the Georgia Tech researchers, there might be charges relating to the misuse of classified government data from DARPA. I will leave you with one last thought. Aaron Mate has a great piece over at Real Clear Politics discussing the history of DNC lawyers from Perkins Coie, Michael Sussman and Mark Elias in furthering the allegations made through CrowdStrike that Russians hacked the DNC. For background, CrowdStrike was retained by Perkins Coie on May 2nd, 2016, on behalf of their client, the DNC, and really the Hillary Clinton campaign, to assist Perkins Coie in, quote, providing legal advice or related services to firm clients, this being the DNC and Hillary. What event triggered the retention of CrowdStrike? 
In late April 2016, the DNC noticed suspicious behavior on its network. They contacted Sussman at Perkins Coie, who then got the help of old friend Sean Henry at CrowdStrike. Quote, within the day, the CrowdStrike team concluded that the intruders were Russian government operatives, end quote. In light of Michael Sussman's indictment and the apparent attempt by those working on behalf of the DNC to push the false Alpha Bank hoax on the FBI, consider whether the deception started earlier. There have long been suspicions of CrowdStrike as being the entity that manipulated data showing Russians allegedly hacked the DNC Clinton servers and extracted the emails. What if CrowdStrike was a patsy there to unknowingly reach false conclusions of a Russian hack based on information provided by to them by Perkins Coie and the DNC. Consider the potential that CrowdStrike was set up to reach a predetermined conclusion by the same lawyers and political figures that gave us the Alpha Bank hoax. Now, that is very interesting. That could take this element of the story in an entirely new direction because it has long been assumed that CrowdStrike was involved in carrying out this hoax. The other interesting part of this is the role that Julian Assange plays in all this and how exactly he came to possess the DNC and Hillary Clinton and John Podesta emails. It is suspected that he was given those by Seth Rich and that that was the motive for the murder of Seth Rich. And of course, if you go too far down that trail, well, the whole corrupt thing unwinds. And that's one of the many reasons why this Durham investigation matters so much, because all of the corrupt organizations and people in the swamp connect to this issue somehow. Now, Merrick Garland was on Capitol Hill to testify before Congress, and the Democrats have used it to try to make the case that the Department of Justice actually should enforce their ridiculous recommendation for charges of criminal contempt against Steve Bannon. But the Republicans in the hearing have actually done a pretty admirable job today. It is impressive. The hearing started off with Jerry Nadler denying the Republicans the ability to show a video in the hearing because one of the members, I think it might've been Carolyn Maloney objected citing some house protocol that says 48 hours notice should be given if they want to show a video in a hearing so that the house AV team can get it all set up. And Nadler actually enforced that. He didn't let the House Republicans play video of parents showing up at school board meetings. But beyond that, the Republicans have gone after a bunch of the different abuses in Merrick Garland's Department of Justice, and nothing can sum it up better than the line of questioning by Arizona's Andy Biggs. So I'm going to play a little bit of that for you. Mr. Chairman. Mr. Mr. Garland, Facebook has admitted in a letter to the Arizona Attorney General that it, quote, allows people to share information about how to enter a country illegally or request information about how to be smuggled, close quote. 8 U.S.C. 1324 criminalizes aiding and abetting entry into the U.S. Uh, by illegal aliens. Have you sent a letter or issued a memorandum 
sim similar to the 10-4-21 memorandum, directing departmental res resources to be dedicated to investigating the apparent violation of law, similar to the one, uh, have you done that? I haven't seen the um, letter or information that you're talking about, but um, if it was sent to the department, I'll make sure that we look at it. It has been reported that Mark Zuckerberg also spent over $400 million in a, quote, carefully orchestrated attempt, close quote, to influence the 2020 election. Those efforts have been referred to as a, quote, private takeover of government election operations, close quote. Have you sent a letter or issued a memorandum directing departmental resources be dedicated to invest investigate these claims? I don't know what was done in 2020 in the previous just, uh, administration of the Justice Department. We're talking know. about the election of 2020. All of this has come out since then, and you've not. I don't. You're I don't totally know. unaware of that. I'm not aware of what you're talking about. I'm sorry. So, so you have not sent a memo, or, or, or you're not investigating that either. Last Sunday, more than 300 churches in Virginia aired a video featuring Vice President Harris advocating the election of Terry McAuliffe as governor of Virginia. This appears to violate Section 501c3 of the IRS Code, as well as other election laws, and seems to be an orchestrated effort by the VP and McAuliffe to violate the law. Have you sent a letter or issued a memorandum directing departmental resources be dedicated to investigating this apparent violation of law, similar to the letter you issued, excuse me, the memorandum you issued on October 4th targeting parents who exercise their First Amendment rights at local school boards? No. On May 24th, 2021, under oath before a congressional committee, Dr. Anthony Fauci denied the National Institute of Health uh, provided any funding for gain-of-function research, saying, quote, that categorically was not done, close quote. Today, this very day, the NIH issued a statement contradicting that testimony, which suggests that Dr. Fauci may have committed perjury. This is a criminal offense, and I'm left to wonder if you intend to look into that and send a communication such as a letter or a memo similar to the October 4th memo that you issued regarding parents going to school board meetings uh, to investigate Dr. Fauci's potential perjury. Again, I'll refer to the long-standing departmental norm that we don't comment about investigations pending or unpending. Um, the, the, the general uh, point that you're making normally comes would, would come with a referral uh, from the relevant committee. Uh, um, but other so than the, that, I the point I'm anything. the actual point I'm making is you chose as a response to a letter from uh, the National uh, School Board Association, and as you said earlier today, uh, news newspaper accounts, to issue a memorandum to organize task force and investigate and put a chill on parents' participation before school boards. Now you say, oh, I didn't mean to provide a chill, but that's exactly what any sentient being would have assumed would happen. When you asked the federal government to begin looking into this, of course parents are going to be nervous now. Of course people will step back. That's the purpose of my questioning. And so this is how Merrick Garland's day has gone for the most part when the Republicans have their turn to speak. Merrick Garland is completely incompetent, it seems. His testimony has been absolutely awful and embarrassing. And one thing that people have gone after him for is what Andy Biggs was mentioning right there. The letter he sent in response to the National School Boards Association. He took almost immediate action 
in responding to this letter. And he was questioned about why this was such an important issue and on what basis he determined that he should send, that he should write the memo and that he should recommend the FBI get involved around the country in these issues. His only evidence he was able to cite was the letter from the National School Board Association. He said he claimed in his testimony that the Department of Justice had noticed an uptick in violence and threats of violence against school officials, teachers and school board members and administrators. But when he was asked if there was a study that he could cite, if there was data he could cite, he had absolutely nothing. He had only the letter. And if you remember, I read that letter on this podcast a few weeks ago. There were maybe four or five examples that the letter referred to. None of them actually constituted violence or threats of violence against school officials. So Merrick Garland essentially admitted in his testimony that he wrote that memo with no basis whatsoever. And of course, as Andy Biggs mentioned, the effect of that memo is a chilling of free speech and a chilling of participation by parents in their school board meetings. The meetings that determine how their children will be treated in school. And of course, it was brought up that Merrick Garland's own son-in-law is involved with a company that profits off of the sale of materials to schools to educate people about critical race theory, which is basically just teaching racism. The thing that has concerned many of those parents that are showing up at these school board meetings, the, the, the very basis of their objection and their vigorous debate, as you mentioned earlier, is the curricula, the very curricula that your son-in-law is selling. So to millions of Americans, I mean, my constituents, I was home all weekend, I got an earful about this. They're very concerned about that. Subpart E of that federal regulation says an employee of the executive branch is discouraged from encouraging con engaging in conduct that's likely to affect the financial interest of someone close to them. Your, your son-in-law, your daughter, uh, clearly meets that definition. And, and so the question is, uh, did, did you follow that regulation? Did you have the appropriate agency ethic official look into this? Did you seek guidance as the federal regulation requires? This memorandum is aimed at violence and threats of violence. I understand There's that, but no did, did you seek, excuse me, did you seek ethics counsel before you issued a letter that directly relates to the financial interest of your family? Yes or no? This memorandum does not relate to the financial interests of anyone. It's a it's against. I take violence. that as a no. I take that as a no. Memorandum is against violence and threats of violence. I will, will you, Mr. Attorney General, will you commit to having the appropriate ethics designee review the case and make the results public? This memorandum is aimed at violence and threats of violence. I understand your talking point. You're not answering my question, I'm Mr. Attorney General. And that's actually not even the biggest ethics violation that we should be concerned with right now. This is from today uh, from Kyle Becker's beckernews.com. It turns out um, attorney general Merrick Garland's wife was heavily involved in stopping election audits in 2020. 
Attorney General Merrick Garland is the nation's top law enforcement official. It is his duty to enforce laws faithfully and without prejudice. However, the attorney general's partisan agenda is made even more explicit when examining his family ties. In 1987, the New York Times reported Merrick Garland's marriage to Lynn Rosenman, who took the name Lynn Garland. She is the granddaughter of Samuel Rosenman, a judge at the New York Supreme Court, who had served as special advisor to Presidents Franklin D. Roosevelt and Harry Truman. In the Times announcement, it provides the background that Lynn Garland worked for E-Systems, which specializes in electronic and information warfare. Mrs. Garland, who graduated from Brearley School and cum laude from Harvard University, received a Master of Science degree in Operations Management from the Sloan School of Management at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She is a staff assistant to the vice president in charge of operations for the Melpar Division of E-Systems Incorporated, a defense electronics contractor in Falls Church, Virginia. The bride's father is a partner in the New York law firm of Cravath, Swain and Moore. E-Systems, a defense contractor based out of New Jersey, has quite the shadowy profile. This is how the Washington Post described the firm in 1994 when it did actual journalism. If Big Brother ever took control of the United States, E-Systems Incorporated would surely be its prime contractor. Consider E-Systems designs spy satellite gear that can snap photographs of automobile license plates from space and capture electronic communications from phone calls to rocket telemetry. E-Systems software can analyze those spy satellite photos to see if anything has changed, a Russian tank moved, or an Iraqi missile site built since the last shots were taken. E-Systems can build, quote, electronic fences, end quote, to police borders. It helped build one such network, of sensors to monitor drug traffickers along the U.S. border with Mexico. And the company says it hopes to build a more sophisticated one for Saudi Arabia. And E-Systems hardware can help federal drug enforcement agencies track cocaine planes and tap drug dealers' telephones. In short, E-Systems technologies, part of the central nervous system for the nation's intelligence community, are regarded as brilliant by intelligence agencies and Wall Street, WAPO added. Lynn Garland would go on to work with the Electronic Verification Network, which describes itself as a network of professionals who consult on elections. She is listed as a member on the EVN website. Just over a decade ago, a small group of election-related professionals concerned with the integrity and improvement of U.S. voting systems considered the potential of a gathering space for leaders, experts, and policymakers, one where they could exchange information, collaborate on ideas, share challenges and solutions, and serve as a trusted advisory resource for those responsible for local, statewide, and national elections. Out of that concept, the Election Verification Network was born. Our mission includes two interwoven goals, to support and maintain voting that is accessible, private, reliable, and secure, and elections that are transparent, accurate, and verifiable. Garland is credited as a co-author for a number of election audit documents ranging from 2008 until 2019. Of particular interest is a document she co-authored with the Brennan Center for Justice, which became notorious for fighting against 2020 election audits. The November 27th, 2019 document was described as, quote, verified voting in consultation with Lynn Garland, independent advisor, and with the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law. Lynn Garland authored, several other audit documents, which are provided below. And Kyle Becker inserts a few documents here. Uh, one is the principles and best practices for post-election tabulation audits from 2018, a 2008 document entitled principles and best practices for post-election audits that Garland helped author and a 2019 guide for uh, Rhode Island 
entitled Pilot Implementation Study of Risk-Limiting Audit Methods by Lynn Garland. Several of the other individuals connected with the Election Verification Network work with far-left nonprofits that work to prevent audits of the results of the 2020 election, Gateway Pundit notes. One of Merrick Garland's most provocative actions as attorney general was to threaten Arizona over its independent audit. In June, Garland issued a stunningly partisan announcement about Arizona's state election integrity efforts. He said, we are scrutinizing new laws that seek to curb voter access and where we see violations, we will not hesitate to act. We are also scrutinizing current laws and practices in order to determine whether they discredit against black voters and other voters of color, particularly concerning in this regard are several studies showing that in some jurisdictions, non-white voters must wait in line substantially longer than white voters to cast their ballots. And Kyle Becker includes Arizona Attorney General Mark Burnovich's response to that, but I'm going to skip down. Attorney General Garland has turned a blind eye to the actual infringement of Americans' rights, such as those stemming from unlawful vaccine mandates. In addition, he has excused rioting by Black Lives Matter and Antifa while persecuting January 6th defendants, many of whom face only minor criminal charges like trespassing. Garland has threatened states that seek answers about what actually happened during the 2020 elections. Worst of all, he has unleashed the FBI on parents who oppose critical race theory being taught in their children's schools. It should come as no surprise then that Merrick Garland's wife was deeply involved in the 2020 election debacle. And his son-in-law is cashing in on American schools, disgraceful critical race theory agenda, as I just mentioned. In many ways, Attorney General Merrick Garland has already surpassed his predecessors in terms of open partisanship and sheer corruption. Garland's conflicts of interest quite apparently run deep, none more serious than his conflict of interest with the Constitution of the United States. And watching him disgrace himself and his office in this testimony, you can't help but think how bad it would be for the country if this guy was actually sitting on the Supreme Court. But it actually kind of gets worse for Merrick Garland today. And I'm going to play this clip from Louis Gomer. But regarding the men who broke the glass in the two doors there at the speaker's lobby, when the two Capitol police been standing there, moved to the side to allow them access, uh, were any of those people who broke glass and did damage to those doors working for the FBI or other federal law enforcement entities? I, uh, and this is an ongoing criminal investigation, and I'm really not at liberty to discuss. There have been some filings um, um, of, uh, in the nature of discovery, which has been provided to the defendants. Uh, but I, uh, other than that, I can't uh, discuss this now. Well, we've seen some of those filings that talk about persons one through 20-something. Uh, were those persons one designated by number? Were those people that were employed by the FBI or federal uh, entities, or were they confidential informants? Again, I, I don't um, know those specifics, but I do not believe that any of the people you're mentioning um, charged in the indictment uh, were either one. I do not believe that the people you're mentioning or charged in the indictment are either one. Well, here's the thing, Merrick. The point is, 
that those people weren't charged. They were mentioned in the indictment. They are unindicted co-conspirators, and that's how they are referred to. That's the point. They know, Louis Gohmert knows, we know that you're not going to indict FBI agents or informants. We know that. The point is that they were involved, and you know that. And what do we have here? We have an illegitimate majority filling the government with illegitimate political hacks like Merrick Garland who exist only to protect and perpetuate the illegitimate hold on power. If it was happening in another country, everyone in America would agree that all of this is wrong, that this is what happens in a banana republic. Just so happens it's our banana republic now. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. Goodbye. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator. You can join the discussion at t.me slash I'm reasonable. I'm also on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcouture.com. You can also go direct to that at shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. I'll see you next time out on the range. Backing as moderator for tonight's broadcast. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct 
shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!